Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Josh McDaniels. It's uh, June 23rd, 2022. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield University. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, First question to get us started is why wine? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, Certainly, it's always fun to come down into Willamette and, uh, you know, Linfield, you know, we're talking about some good memories here, but I didn't go to college here, actually looked at it, but, um, you know, it's uh it's just such a beautiful area and i love it's always like a nice kind of it reminds me of walla walla but in a different way and so it's a nice complimentary place to visit but also a nice kind of um you know you know differentiation mm-hmm. that like gives me something else so mm-hmm. it's it's always nice to be here um what was the question <laughs> <laughs> why wine yeah why wine in general man it's a a big broad question i i got into wine when i was uh very young much you know when i was 15 16 years old much to my mom's strong uh disliking i started my own winery when i was in high school so (laughs) i uh was kind of actually in a backwards way too i was much more of an entrepreneur than you know had any interest at wine as you can imagine being that young didn't really know a lot about the product, um, but outside of knowing that my mom didn't want me to drink alcohol, um, but really just was trying to find a way to make money. And uh, my dad was an entrepreneur, and so I thought, you know, maybe I could put some wine together and, and try to sell it and figure something out. And, you know, fast forward a few years, it turned out I actually fell in love with the with the process and from farming to winemaking to sales and the business side. and. And um, in, inevitably found out I love the product as well. So it was a totally backwards way of getting into the wine industry, but something that, you know, had its own proliferations. So what on earth made you think wine rather than like a lemonade stand or something like that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was the mystery of, of not being able to consume the product. Uh, but also I think like Drew, who I, you know, are my friend and boss and business partner now, we always joke that we kind of have like business ADD. <laughs> and I think that the wine industry, it's, you know, when you boil it down, it's, it's farming and manufacturing and accounting and sales and marketing. And there's so many different aspects of it that I think, you know, you never get bored and you're always, you know, your mind is constantly engaged in a different way and uh, constantly challenged um, in ways that, you know, you haven't, you know, you didn't do yesterday. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty unique and dynamic industry that way. So let's back up a bit. You mentioned kind of growing up. Tell us where you grew up and uh, kind of your your path after school. Yeah, so I grew up in Walla Walla, a great place to grow up, especially, you know, you certainly as a kid, you take it for granted, right? Um, Beautiful little farming community. I think the county now is like 62,000 people. And it's, you know, as a kid, you don't really understand what you have. And so, you know, certainly once I got older, you know, the plan was to, you know, go to business school and go live in a big city. And, and uh, you know, the wine industry, you know, changed that for me. But growing up in Walla Walla was, you know, you know now that I'm older, I understand how how much value was there mm-hmm. and uh it was yeah it was a great great time my dad worked at the cannery when i was a kid uh, worked the night shift at the cannery 
uh, when we were young, and I remember, um, you know, middle of the night, we'd, my three sisters and I would cram into my mom's white Suburban and huddle under the heat register and take my dad lunch at, you know, two in the morning. And um, he ended up getting hurt uh, at the cannery, and um, that's how he started his first business and in Walla Walla. And, and, you know, this accident ended up being one of the best things that happened to him because it kind of thought, changed his mind and, and thought process about, you know, I should, probably should start doing something different. And mm -hmm. uh, he was a big inspiration, I think, to me starting my own businesses. So tell me about after high school. Yeah, so uh, high school, you know, Walla Walla High School, go Blue Devils. Um, after that, you know, I had had big plans, but I had a business at the same time that was actually doing pretty well. <laughs> and the winery had grown to 2,000 cases, and um, it, so it changed plans pretty rapidly. And so I made the, the hard decision to stay in Walla Walla and attended the Enology and Viticulture program there, which is through the Walla Walla Community College. And, uh, you know, at the time it was, it felt, it was hard because, you know, I was, I always enjoyed academics and, um, you know, kind of felt like settling a little bit to go to a community college, even though you know the program had had uh, had and still does has a has a great reputation. But yeah, it was challenging, and so I did that. And um, as you know, more good fortune would have it, the uh, you know Lehman Brothers collapse and the uh, financial crisis came kind of at the end of 2008. And I graduated from that program in 2009, and and um, you know my that business and my a lot of my family's businesses were really struggling and um, made another hard decision to not continue college and and try to pull everything out of you know the, the, the edge of bankruptcy so it was a really challenging time but uh, in hindsight it was easily you know certainly a better education than I could have paid for going to business school or continuing on in enology in, in and viticulture so um, that I did, you know, do a lot of uh, extension work through Washington State and, and Davis, and uh, I'm actually looking at right now going back to school. So, yeah. Interesting. I'm gonna come back to that, the back to school part. That's interesting. Uh, tell me about. You mentioned it's kind of it's kind of interesting. We haven't talked to anyone who had a wine business as they graduated high school before to consider. Yeah. Uh, how do you grow a wine business when you're not 21 yet? And how did yeah. how, how did it function and when did it become something you thought you started taking seriously? Yeah, you know, I, t I took it seriously at the beginning. I remember having, you know, sitting in Spanish class or something in high school and writing out, you know, proformas on the back of a, you know, a, a, le a legal pad, I guess. And, um, you know, it was it was engaging and interesting to me from that perspective. And, and it, it took off right away. I mean, it was 2005, you know, kind of the height of a lot of growth in Walla Walla. And, you know, the first year we did 110 or 20 cases of wine, which isn't very much, but sold it out in a couple of weeks. And, you know, the next year we did four or 500 cases and sold it out in a couple of months. And then we grew uh, a little over a thousand cases and, and did really well. And, and then, uh, you know, and then, you know, 2,000 cases for a couple of years, and it was, it was great, and and um, it was hard to run it. And originally, my name couldn't be on the liquor license, you know, so that my parents helped me out with that. Um, somehow, I talked a, a few people into investing with me, and that's kind of how I got the capital to grow. Um, which, also in hindsight, how the hell do you invest into a winery with a you know 16, 17 year old kid? I don't know. Um, I don't know if that speaks more about me or about them, but. Um, 
yeah, big challenge, but certainly kind of fun too. And I think I, I enjoyed that. It felt rebellious in a lot of ways, you know, having an alcohol company when you're on, when you're that young and, mm -hmm. and, um, and like I said, the mystery of it was, was really engaging. But I also remember, um, you know, the week that I turned 21, I was on the road for sales trips and, uh, I, I hit, I slept on my, uh, cousin's couch for a week and just stayed in Seattle and, and, uh, pounded pavement and trying to sell wine and and uh, it was yeah it was you know learning from experience in that regard and when it's your own money and, and now other people's money too you had to be successful and so you had to farm really well you had to make great wine you had to um, manage things on, on the behind the scenes really well and so it was just you know an incredible experience incredibly challenging um, incredibly uncomfortable especially once you know the financial crisis came and um, I, and I learned just a ton from it. It was a great, great experience. So tell me about the educational process then for you at Walla Walla. Uh, you've already been doing this a little time. What, what did you not know yet? What did you have to learn? And what, what did that program kind of uh, add to your, add to your skills? Yeah, it was, it's funny. It, um, a lot, you know, it was a lot of science classes, but obviously you had core classes. You know, I took, I signed up for extra stuff too. I took, you know, a couple more years of Spanish and, and whatnot. And um, there's some small business management and, and just like, you know, English and math and whatnot. So it was, you know, continuing ed from those perspectives. But, you know, also it was just, it was a lot of science and, and found out I loved soil sciences, um, had an incredible uh, professor for, the, for those two years. And, and um, you know, then there was plant sciences, and it was just a, a lot of just refinement and like background knowledge about what you were doing. But I think you got a, a broader understanding of what you were trying to accomplish too, or what you were accomplishing. You actually understood how you were accomplishing it. So, um, you know, chemistry or biology obviously played big roles in that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned after school, obviously rough financial time for everyone, uh, hitting close to home. So what did you have to do at that point and what was the kind of the next step for you? Yeah, so growing up, I, you know, Figgins family that founded uh, Leonetti, mm -hmm. they were, you know, Chris was kind of like my second dad in a lot of ways and he, uh, I started working, that's partly how I got into wine is I started working for them when I was, when I was young. And when I got out of, I worked for them full time while I was in school too and then, um, made my wine at night and and then in 2009 when I when I got out I went you know as much hours as possible trying to make money to pay for what I was doing and um, yeah it was just it was you know they were hugely helpful in that regard so I you know learned as much as possible from them um, you know they actually gave me money to, to go to school too and um, you know, gave me, you know, I remember Chris gave me uh, some Cabernet plants to plant and um, I bought their old barrels and I used their vineyard crew um, on the weekends. Their vineyard crew would come uh, manage the farm that my wife and I had. So it was just a, a crazy, you know, all encompassing time of my life that you just worked your ass off. And um, yeah, it was, it was challenging and, and I'm glad I'm not in that situation now, but I'm really glad I went through it. So 
what was the what 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 was the brand called that you were working with at that point, and, and at what point did you take 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 on the next step? Yeah, so it's called Sweet Valley, which was uh, named after the Walla Walla Sweet Onion, uh, which was, you know, as a 15-year-old, it was a great name, but you know the, the kind of the misconceptions about sweet wine was turned out to be a hard marketing uh, hurdle to get over. Um, and then I had another line called Righteous Wines, which was kind of a, you know, trying to break down barriers for people that were my age to try to get them into wine, which, you know, you know, fast forward 15 years is what we're still all talking about. And, um, and yeah, so those, we grew them really well and Righteous especially took off and did, did pretty well. And my wife and I had, um, it was, you know, the, at the same time, the financial crisis kind of allowed some opportunities that maybe I wouldn't have had if it hadn't have happened. Um, you know, there was a piece of property that was up for sale that the, the owner needed to get out, out of, <laughs> underneath of. And my wife and I talked him into carrying a contract, you know, which nowadays probably wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we, because of that, you know, we built up a lot of equity, and then ended up, you know, being able to make a lot of wine from that vineyard, and then also um, sold it a few years ago and, and made good money um, for ourselves too. So there were, you know, pros and cons to the that time, but it was uh, it was really good to get out of. Yeah. So you mentioned Drew Bledsoe earlier as your kind of longtime partner and 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 business partner in this in this project so what point does he enter the picture yeah drew and i met um, while i was at leonetti and you know he i remember the first time we met he you know obviously big name big you know as a walla walla kid drew blood so was you know i always say the mythical godlike figure that every young boy aspired to be and um, you know kind of lived your dreams out vicariously through him <laughs> and um i like to you know kind of remind him that he's actually a little too old that I don't remember a lot of his playing days, <laughs> um, which is pretty funny. But um, he, we met at Leonetti. Uh, Chris Figgins was the original uh, winemaker for Doubleback. And so I worked on the Doubleback wines from the beginning because we kind of managed a Doubleback, or Leonetti obviously, uh, Figgins, uh, their new project, and then Doubleback, and then eventually Toil, Oregon, which was Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. And so Drew and I met uh, just casually, you know, kind of in the winery a few times, and then over the years we struck up a really great relationship, and um, things happened, and and slowly started to make a plan where uh, I took over a double back from Chris, which which ended up being you know a great great option for me. So I ended up ended my winery in 2015, and. Um, the year before that kind of took over, uh, I was 26 when I took over uh, Doubleback. What was the process like for you to go from a place where you'd been making kind of all your own decisions for a very long time to now having this kind of other, somebody else's project that you're working for? Yeah, it was, it was good. It was, uh, you know, Drew and I had gotten to know each other for a long time. Uh, I think we both had a lot of the same mindsets, you know, Drew, you don't get to the NFL without being competitive and then retiring, you know, you can't get rid of that. And then me being young, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder with something to prove and very competitive in that regard. And so we connected in that way. And, you know, Drew, 
I got to watch that interaction between Drew and Chris, where Chris had a lot of autonomy. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember asking Drew, you know, I kind of interviewed him because you don't want to get into a big project with a lot of eyeballs on you and fail. And so I, did, I took that process pretty seriously. And, and, you know, I asked him, you know, is this a vanity project? Like, you know, you see so many uh, athletes or celebrities take on, or is this a real business where you have to make great wine? And, you know, yeah, he answered it that way. And, and I also had seen that, you know, he was hands-on, but he wasn't, he understood that he didn't know what he was doing. And that was a big, um, thing to admit for someone like that. And something that I appreciated a lot. So it was, Certainly nerve-wracking because you know it's a lot of money and a and a big player in in Washington wine, um, but I felt very comfortable um, having come from Leonetti and learning, having gone through all the mistakes and failures at my own uh, companies in the past. It was uh, it was a good it was a good process to go through. The first year or so was a lot of learning, but um, you got that under your belt, and and I felt really good about it. So before I move on with that, I'm curious, you mentioned obviously mistakes and failures, a lot of, a lot of challenges in that, in that business like that. Tell me, what were some of the big kind of learning experiences for you in the, in the, in the early years of your wine career? Yeah, so, you know, first things first is you can't do any, you can't sell, even for someone like Drew who had a big name, you can't sell shitty wine, you know, and, and so you have to do everything from the ground up the right way. You can't have the best sales team in the world and, and make mediocre juice and sell it for a hundred bucks a bottle. You just can't do it or you can't do it for very long. And so you have to farm, you have to find great ground. You have to farm it really well. You have to, you have to plant it really well before you farm it. You got to make really great wine in every regard. Mm -hmm. Then you have to have great packaging and we talk about it a lot in our company now is, is, you know, people ask you, you know, what do you do well? And we say everything, you know, we do everything really well. We try to do every, every small detail really well. And uh, that was really important from the get go to understand, like from my Sweet Valley days, that there were times where I cut corners and had to learn the hard way um, what that result was. And it, weren't, it wasn't great. And, um, you know, and when you're, 18 years old, you have your money and other people's money, and the financial downturn is enormous, and just the pressure of that, and you make the wrong decision to cut a corner, maybe in winemaking or the packaging or whatever it was. That wasn't that wasn't an, a, a small price to pay, <laughs> and um, and I certainly and I see it happen all the time now. You know, even through 2020, you know, you saw a lot of people cutting corners and making mistakes, kind of at the you know beginning of the pandemic, and um, you know, you always have to have your eye on the long term mm -hmm. um, in this business. And for us, we've always said that you know, if the wine's not great, it's not going in the bottle. And if it's uh, not a good long-term decision, then we're not going to do it. And you know, the wildfires of 2020 down here in Willamette were a great example of that. We made the decision to try to make all that wine, and it just you know maybe we could have made it all right, 25, 35 dollar bottles of Pinot Noir, but they weren't good. 80, they weren't good enough. 85 dollar bottles of wine, and so we sold it all off as bulk, and and that was really hard, hard you know, to see and do, but it was an easy decision because we knew it was the right long-term one. Mm -hmm. So things like that um, that I learned back then certainly have, have translated into how we operate now. So tell me about your sort of winemaking style or philosophy at that time and 
uh, again, kind of going from autonomous decision making to, uh, to working with other people, did it change significantly as you took over at Doubleback? Hmm. I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, obviously Leonetti played a huge part in my style. Um, you know, I was in, you know, that was, you know, <laughs> born and bred there and, and uh, ingrained into my mind and the ways to do that. I think maybe I've, I've never been afraid to be different and I've never just wanted to make um, kind of like what's cool. I've never, I've never wanted to just do that. And so, you know, I've always gravitated towards uh, producers like, like in Barolo and where there's, you know, like too often today, you know, people are so afraid of tannin. Um, and specifically like in Cabernet and I'll probably even in Pinot Noir. Um, you know, people want, you know, soft, pleasing wines. And they're just always have been really boring to me. And um, I think that we've, sometimes we've flirted that line in ways that some people don't like but so far you know we have a great mailing list of a lot of people that do like it and you know we're not trying to make wine that pleases the crowds and and um, and I don't think I've ever done that um, but maybe I've just gotten better at it <laughs> so, uh, but one thing we've stayed committed to is we've said that we're, we're always want to make wines that we truly enjoy and hopefully other people do and I think that too often I've seen people trying to make wines that uh, Jeb Dunnick or uh, Robert Parker XYZ critic enjoys and I don't think that's staying true to yourself or something that really is intriguing uh, or intellectually um, you know bringing you much happiness and doing it that direction so we've always tried to stay true to making wines that we like and hope that other people like them <laughs> so far it's been <laughs> we've had enough people agree with us so you mentioned the, the first year there, a big learning experience for you. What was unique about the, ex, the experience at Double Back and, and, and the kind of the expectations there? And take us through the first couple of years working there for yourself as you're kind of growing into the, the work there. Yeah, so it was, you know, I would say it was figuratively big shoes to fill because, you know, Chris is kind of a smaller guy, but uh, <laughs> had a big name. So it was, uh, it was, you know, I was nervous stepping into the shoes for sure, but I was excited at the same time. Um, you know, what did I learn that first year? Uh, you know, importance of having a great team, uh, importance of, you know, being um, organized and ready, but also like there was, you know, small things like I've, I've, all, I've never, you know, picked too, I've never, I've picked too early. I don't think I've ever picked too late. Mm -hmm. um, small things like that and 2015, um, you know, was a curveball with the second vintage with my name on the bottle, and it was the hottest vintage on record. And big curveball, and especially with Cabernet and, and the sites, the estate sites that we have in Walla Walla that we farm, you know, challenging, very challenging. You know, easy to extract way too much tannin and, and uh, become make these wines that are just super out of balance. And um, it, you had to approach things differently. Mm -hmm. So learned a lot that year, and, and you know, and, and we were just talking about it with last year, 2021 being almost as hot as 2015. We were super comfortable with that. And you know, I have the same team of guys that were with me back then that are with me still. And so you know, we understand how to approach um, those situations. So um, you know, I don't think one thing that I appreciated about Drew is that he didn't want to make you know, 100%, 200% new American oak and ultra ripe Cabernets. You didn't want to make Camus special select. 
Um, he wanted to make you know something that was number one true to where we both grew up because he grew up in Walla Walla too, and also uh, something that was you know elegant and complex. And we, he, you know, one thing that he talks about a lot is rather than your first glass of wine being the best, he wants your last glass of wine and that bottle to be the best sip that you have. And I think that that speaks a lot to wines that age really well and and wines that pair with food really well and not just wines that you know maybe you first fall in love with like when you're young into wine that are like obvious wines um, wines that you know start to open up and unfold and have layers and complexities to them um, and i think that's you know unfortunately maybe uh, the rarity these days but maybe the pendulum swinging back to that, that so i appreciated that a lot and it was something that that i uh uh, obviously bought into and, and was excited to continue on. <clears throat> I'm curious about how your, as your role evolved, uh, uh, give me an idea of sort of uh, vineyard time, winery time, uh, how did you kind of break it down and what were you kind of, what were you still learning along the way or what were you kind of looking to kind of add to your skill set? Yeah, good, great question. Um, the first thing that I saw at Doubleback when I took over was you know, we had two estate vineyards at the time. And growing up at Leonetti, we had, you know, four or five, maybe six now. And, and that was a big piece of the puzzle to me. And, you know, when you have these extreme vintages, like 15 and, and four years prior to that, we had the coldest vintage on record in 2011. And um, so when you have these, you know, just dynamically different uh, growing seasons, you need to have vineyard sites that are also dynamically different. And so um, we had McQueen Vineyard, which is um, high, a little higher elevation up on top of a fractured a ridge line of fractured basalt. Uh, it's very windy and uh, just incredibly hard to farm, but it's all you know tannin and acid. Then we had uh, Bob Healy at the time, which was kind of the heart of the hill that was riper and, and pretty fruit and a little bit more lush. And so then you know I went down the hill into the rocks district. We got we found a, a piece of property there. It took a couple few years, you know, and found pieces and, and people that we'd like to work with and and uh, kind of weaseled in my way into a, a piece of property there. So <clears throat> that is like the exact opposite of McQueen Vineyard. It's, uh, uh, you know, the Rocks District has its own set of characteristics, but it's, you know, lush and plush tannin, but also like not as much acid and just uh, rounds things out from, from the hillside perfectly. I mean, they balance together really well. Um, and now we have an estate at the winery which sees these enormous uh, temperature swings. Um, it's a cooler site, but it's actually like our, sees our highest highs and our lowest lows though. So lots of acid and like darkly uh, flavored and, and, and just enormously textured wines. And uh, right now I'm under contract on a, another piece of property that's in the foothills of the Blue Mountains. And so it's just like developing this portfolio where rather than half, I've never believed that you, you should have to do a lot in the cellar. You should have to do a lot in the farms, and uh, and that was you know enormously important because in a hot year like 2015 or 2021, then you can go to those cooler and later ripening sites and make those a bigger part of the blend, and then you know vice versa. In, in, in really cold years, you can go to the warmer sites and utilize those more. So um, we can balance out vintage variation a little bit, but still maintain you know a sense of identity and and a sense of, uh, of place within the, uh, in a soul, you know, having, farming our own places and, and having our own land. <clears throat> Obviously you mentioned that's a lot of different kinds of vineyards, a lot of, a lot of different kinds of viticulture, I would assume, needed for those. Uh, 
uh, how much do you, how, how much is sort of coming from you and from the Doubleback team and how much is coming from the people who farm those sites? Yeah, I, um, I direct it all and it's all like philosophically directed by me. And then, and you know, the, it goes back to one of the original comments is just the importance of having great people around you and people you can trust and people that you can understand and, and interpret what's what they're saying into, into actuality. And, um, you know, I'm learning that again down here in Willamette. Um, you know, we bought a, a piece of property uh, we bought last year and just trying to find uh, another set of people that, that I really trust and enjoy. Um, but yeah, it's, I kind of set the standard and then, you know, the, the pragmatic side of it is, the, is to go out and execute that. And our team does a really good job of it. But I still get out and get through vineyards as often as possible. Uh, we used to joke that, you know, we'd be out in you know, whether it's March or May or June, and you'd never see a winemaker out in the vineyard until, you know, two weeks before harvest. So um, there's so much farming and, 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 and flavor development, uh, you know, so much further, you know, earlier in the growing season <laughs> than that. You know, you're, you're, things are already done by then. And um, so, you know, I've always been a big believer in just time spent in vineyards. And <clears throat> in 2019, you know, we started our own farming company, and this was a huge um, shift for us. We finally had gotten enough acreage that it made sense, and you know, we've always been sustainably certified. But you know, which to us means you know, financial sustainability, um, obviously a lot of environmental things that we do, which we can talk about. Um, but the big thing that, especially then, that I think is catching on maybe now was the people aspect. And um, so we started out, we had our own crew, and we made a commitment to make them, you know, the, one of the highest paid, if not the highest, in the Northwest. They have full health insurance, they have full retirement benefits, and so many farms, you know, lay people off after eight or nine months of the growing season, and we keep them employed uh, year-round. So that big, you know, kind of uh, shift for us starting in 2019 was really cool to watch. And we, you know, we, th we did it because it was the right thing to do. But the unintended consequences and benefits we couldn't have measured or, or expected. And I remember in, in harvest of 2019, there, October 9th, there was a fall frost event in Walla Walla and you know, wiped out a lot of vineyards and we were in pretty good shape. And so our crew went and helped one of our neighbors pick their fruit and our, one of our crew members, <laughs> they finished up and our, one of our, I think it was our crew leader, Pedro, he came out and to our vineyard manager and he's like, boss, boss. And like, yeah, Pedro, and he's like, this vineyard looks like shit. <laughs> you know, our vineyards will never look like this. And it was just little instances like that, like that started to click like, wow, you know, like because we took care of them, they're taking even probably even better care of us. And it's the, because of that, they're staying with us. And so it's the same group of people that are attending every vine in our vineyard. And so they understand it better than you know, I ever could have because they're there every day and they're not leaving. And so they understand, you know, where does the soil uh, series change in this block? Or where does the, maybe the irrigation fault in this block? And, um, and there's just you know, the unintended benefits of that decision were enormous and something that has, has uh, you know, given, has been really impactful on our company. And that culture has flowed all the way up to the top through our production and sales team. And um, it's been a really cool impact. 
tell me about the sort of the farming style and, and, and its evolution in the time, if, if it's evolved at all. Yeah, well, um, right now we're all live, certified sustainable through live, which is down here in the Willamette Valley, and that's been huge for us. Um, we do, a, we're organic down here in Willamette, and we do a lot of organic things. I've never liked um, some of the certifications, and just, I don't like to have to pay people to tell me what we already know. <laughs> that's always annoying. Um, but it's it's like I said, you know, sustainability had through those three things to us, and you know, the first one, financial sustainability. Um, I remember my first college professor, uh, Dr. Stan Clark, told me, you know, Josh, it doesn't matter if you like to make wine if you can't afford to do it, which I learned the hard way. Um, but if we want to make environmental differences, or if we want to make um, HR differences in people's lives, we have to make money. <laughs> like that has to come from somewhere, and so we've always committed to that. That's been a, a big piece of the pie and then you know the environmental side of things you know work um, working we bought Mimi Castile's place down here in, in Willamette and she's just she's been incredible and I've always enjoyed um, soil sciences and biodiversity and understanding how to make things better but she's really like ignited another spark recently um, in in getting going down back down that rabbit hole which has been really fun and gotten uh, really big into understanding better understanding uh, regenerative farming practices and you know particularly we were in Napa last spring with uh, with at Harlan of all places and fully prepared to hate Harlan uh, but good lord it's beautiful <laughs> and they were you know in the Napa and they're you know we're you know, uh, ecology is enormous and understanding water usage and they're trying to dry land farm in Napa. And I remember coming away from that that night, you know, talking with our team, like if they can do it in Napa, why can't we try to do it in Walla Walla? And so, you know, trying to understand, you know, regenerative farming practices within that, that realm uh, much more deeply and trying to push things towards um, that end of the spectrum. Because if we can get there, it's, you know, enormously impactful on all three of those things um, within sustainability, you know, obviously financial cost savings. And then, you know, obviously the environmental impact of not, you know, pulling water out of the ground and spreading it out ac across a piece of property. So it's just, um, um, that style, I think, is is probably stayed the same, but uh, but enormously evolved, and mm -hmm. and um, just one of our core values in our business is being open-minded, and um, that's been really key to, to being able to make those those pivots, and and um, you know not being afraid to say I was wrong, you know, mm -hmm. and how do I get better. <clears throat> So before we get to the, the purchase here in the Lima Valley, uh, kind of before that, before you decided to kind of get into a di whole different realm of the wine industry, tell me about the how the business had progressed and um, sort of the, where you kind of felt the stature of the of the of Doubleback was. Yeah, so you know, Doubleback is like right around four forty five hundred five thousand cases of production, and it's all allocated and, and sold to a mailing list and, and and private to go out to the winery. And we didn't want to screw that up at all. You know, we really enjoyed that size and the quality of the wines and also always feeling like even though we were making some of the best Cabernet, you know, on the um, West Coast, that we always felt like we can, with that size, we can continue to get better. And that was really important to us. Um, at the same time, we had, ju we just launched 
um, 10 years after Doubleback had launched, we launched Bledsoe Family Winery. And that was really, you know, twofold. One, we felt like because of that, we could make Doubleback better also because we had more access to fruit. And then also, you know, Drew and I both grew up in Walla Walla and understand that not everyone can afford a $115 bottle of Cabernet. And, can't, and we can't always get people into the winery. And that's kind of lame to us, right? I mean, we, his parents were school teachers and my dad worked at the cannery. You know, we didn't grow up with money. And um, so it was important to us to have something that was more approachable, more affordable, and a little bit easier, easier to understand and digest. And, um, and that went really well. And, it, you know, Willamette kind of came up in so many different odd ways, you know, my, wife and I during college loved to come down to Willamette because it was wine country but we didn't know anyone <laughs> you know and so it was kind of like an escape for us where we could go to a you know be in a tasting room and not know anyone <laughs> and, and found out like holy shit these wines are also also incredible and the valley is beautiful so you know that was kind of like the first bug for us and then uh, Drew's wife Mara she grew up in Lake Oswego so there was kind of a, a pretty close hometown connection to that um, Drew also, you know, lives in, in Bend, and, and I think, you know, in their household, um, they drink more Willamette Valley Pinot Noir than anything else, so that was important. And then for me on the production side, uh, we launched Bloodsome McDaniels, which is the Willamette project, in uh, 2019. Um, in 2011, I was making uh, Pinot Noir with the Figgins family, who had launched their Toil Oregon project. Uh, I think the first vintage we released was 2012, but we started in 2011. So I had a long history of making Pinot down here and, and got to learn a lot about it through that regard. But at a high level, it's so, you know, we've always felt like they're so obviously different. I mean, hot, dry, eastern Washington, um, kind of cooler and, and wet, uh, the Willamette Valley. Um, but they're so, you know, like, uh, you scratch under the surface a little bit, and they're so um, similar, you know? The, all the lava flows that, that formed Walla Walla and the Columbia Valley also mostly formed the Willamette Valley. Um, the Missoula floods, you know, the two most tr like foundational and transformational pieces of the puzzle um, were the exact same, the Missoula floods, broke through, carved out the Columbia Valley, and then backed up into Walla Walla, continued down the Columbia River, and then backed up into the Willamette Valley too. So those those two things were enormously similar. Um, we were making Syrah in the Walla Walla Valley, and it's, you know, highlights terroir really well. Mm -hmm. It's like a product of the exact place where it was grown. What is Pinot Noir? It's the exact same thing. So there was like obvious uh, differences, but very, very unique and interesting uh, similarities that I think nobody ever talked about, and we wanted to kind of highlight that. Mm -hmm. So, launched the project and uh, in 2019, and it's gone. Uh, we released our. The, we actually made a, the 2017s under a different label and sold it under a different label to see kind of how it went and how the wines were, and then uh, it went really well. And so 2018 was our first uh, vintage, um, and it's gone really well. And I also think, you know, Pinot shows everything really well, and this has been one of the most interesting things to me is, 
you know, you have to be very precise and, and understanding of the site and, and farming and, and, and winemaking too. And having to do that, I think it's also made me a better Cabernet winemaker. So like, like back to unintended benefits, right? Like you didn't, I didn't think that would happen, but it's been, uh, it's, you know, a lot of people say like, how, how can you be like a great Cabernet producer and then think you can be a great Pinot producer? And I think, uh, you know, those, those, you know, the collaboration of understanding those differences, I think, helps make you maybe a little bit better, more well-rounded. What are the main differences in when it comes to production of the two, of the, kind of the two stuff, Cabernet and Pinot Noir? Yeah, well, the big, I mean, the obvious ones, you know, Cabernet, we bring it in, we beat it up. I mean, it's, we just, you know, <laughs> kick its ass in the winery. I mean, a lot of oxygen. Um, you know, depending on the blocks, you know, some um, heavy extraction depends on the block, some really light extraction. So um, those are the, the big differences. Because, um, you know, Pinot, we come in, you know, generally very gentle and very hands off and, you know, not any oxygen. And, and, um, and it's just, you know, those are the two obvious factors. But, you know, we do some whole cluster fermentation with Pinot Noir, which I really love. And uh, don't do any on, on on Cabernet, obviously. But yeah, those are those are the like the two high level, uh, obvious differences that people see. But you know, at the end of the day, it's still very similar. And if you can just compartmentalize and see the big picture for each project, then uh, you can understand the pieces uh, to the sum, the later sum, and uh, develop those individually. So when the time came that you decided to kind of go into Pinot Noir and find the valley, was the plan all along to eventually purchase land here or did that just sort of come about? It, if We always have said if we were going to get serious about a project, then yeah, we want to be estate driven, just like double back. It's important to us to be connected to the land. It's important to us to have uh, people that we trust managing it. And then, um, you know, and just philosophically, it's more interesting, I think, to us, like as consumers, when that's the case, mm -hmm. you know, there's it's just like the you know the vertically integrated model is just like like. I mean, as a consumer, I know that I like that more because it ties people to that actual piece of ground. And like I remember uh, Jean Louis Chave, the wine, great one of my favorite winemakers. You know, he's like you know, what is quality, you know, and like in this day and age, like what is quality? Like if Burberry can replicate thousands and thousands of the exact same, you know, scarf for and sell it for 350 bucks, like is that quality or is quality something that's non-replicable? And I think that piece of property part is, is non-replicable. Like nobody else in the world has that piece of ground and growing that exact same way uh, that you are, and I think that's really important to highlight and to share and, and to um, you know illustrate to the consumer. So, how did the actual piece of property that you did end up buying come about? You know, we're like I always keep my ears open and, and just talking to people, even if I'm not interested in, in buying it. But having known that we would be eventually interested, and quite frankly, we were probably like two years mature, premature of, of like really being ready. Um, but we were looking at a few things and kind of like not impressed with what we were finding. And somebody just mentioned this piece of property that might be for sale, and um, maybe we should call her. And so. Um, Mimi, we give Mimi a call and 
um, you know, I'd heard everything about Mimi too, and which is so funny how polarizing the wine industry can be and the misconceptions around that, but fully prepared for like Mimi to not like us and just absolutely fell in love with her and the, you know, the philosophy of what she was doing and, and um, just the property was just like gorgeous. I mean, it just, I was just there, you know, an hour ago and just beautiful and what she had, the way that she had done it too, so much reminded me of what I would have loved to have done when I started my own winery. And so I think it really struck a chord, um, probably emotionally too. Is, is I, I remember um, Drew and I were on the road together after that and I said it's actually really hard to keep your business hat on in this instance because there's a lot of those emotional uh, kind of tugs on that property and um, it just kind of checked off all the boxes for us and um, eventually worked out a deal with Mimi and it, and it worked out really well. So she's a fantastic person that's doing some really cool things and, and uh, wish her nothing but the best. So with the, with the property, as you started to get to know it, uh, what do you what what do you kind of like about it now, and what do yeah. you see coming down the road? Yeah, well, first thing that I loved about it is, uh, you know, in, in winemaking, I've always tried to <laughs> the funny and stupid analogy that I've always used is like if you're Bob Ross on TV and you're trying to paint this masterpiece, you know, you need a color palette, right, to do it. To do it. And so we've always uh, thought about wine in that regard. <laughs> Hopefully we paint something better than a Bob Ross painting. But, um, you know, you need, you need different colors. And so that property to me had, you know, different clones, had different soil types, had different aspects in so many ways, had different row orientations, and had um, um, different angles to the sun. There was just so much there in that one property from which you could make completely different wines. And so if you can make completely different wines on that property and then bring it all into the cellar and then blend it into something that works, um, there's a ton of potential there. Or, or not blend it into something that works. To keep them all individually uh, separate and, and, and highlight things that way. So that was, you know, at the high level, that was, you know, extremely intriguing to us. And we also liked, there's a house on the property and we liked the idea of, you know, we've always thought we were going to try to replicate double back in the Willamette Valley. And so small by appointment, um, you know, one group at a time and, and, um, and just really get to know our customers and, uh, and make great wine was and that house and the property was set up um, perfectly for that. So plus there was room to grow and, and maybe room to uh, plant some blocks that were more exciting that went, than what was there. And so there was potential there too. And that was a, that was a big piece. So, um, but yeah, you know, overall it's just, it's a beautiful piece of property. You know, I was there today, and it's clear out, blue skies. Thank God. And you know, looking at Mount Hood, and I, I'm pretty sure Adams, and 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 just a you know beautiful valley. It's mm -hmm. it's really cool. So, and then you know, take that on to the philosophy that Mimi had um, established there, and us trying to continue that. Um, and understanding we'll probably never fully, we will never fully be able to, you know, replace Mimi, but trying to take what she had established and, and, and build on it and, and do it in our way too. So, yeah, just an awesome, awesome opportunity. So we talk about, uh, we, we kind of brought up 2020 a bit earlier. Uh, I'm curious about your kind of experiences during 2020. Uh, 
dealing with a pandemic and, and harvest and all of that. And, and obviously, Walla Walla, a little bit different than most people we talked to in the Valley who were very yeah. affected by smoke that year. But tell me about kind of getting through 2020 and the adjustments you had to make and, and, and how things have gone the last couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, importantly to note that Walla Walla, like 40% of the vineyards are in Oregon. So I want to make sure that's known, um, which I always, and a lot of people hate me for this, but I always hate getting hung up on the state border thing i just like i focus on the area and and that's what's important to me but it, you know for this uh sense i think it's it's important to notate but yeah 2020 was you know obviously crazy from the get-go and walla walla i remember actually we had historic flooding in january of 2020 and then we went into march obviously covid lockdowns um were insane and just um you know, apocalyptic and, and hard to understand rea reality and th that it was real. And, um, you know, and trying to support your team and, and the human side of, of business and also still understanding that mother nature is continuing. You know, we have to farm and, and make sure the wines are okay. And um, so continuing that and finding ways and, and innovating in what we're doing and finding ways to do it in the appropriate way. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then, you know, the wildfires that happened and the front, I think, <laughs> I, un I know for sure, wild the wildfires, the smoke taint issue is easily the most frustrating thing I've ever gone through as a winemaker. Um, there's like no rhyme or reason to it. The, it's extremely hard to understand from a, you know, a, an air quality index level and, and, um, you know, the ability for it to taste great up front and then maybe five, 10 years later in the bottle for it to develop um, is, is scary. And also just the fact that, you know, you you go through other issues in wine and there's so much uh, research and, and literature on, on the issue that you can actually learn from it. And there was nothing, you know, and, and you know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry in the U.S. that has virtually no scientific background on it and so this is kind of just mind-boggling from that perspective um, but also you know we had a beautiful vintage it was a great vintage and and you get all the way until like in Willamette you know probably like all the way until like two maybe three weeks to picking time all you do all that work and then nine days of smoke ruined it ruins it just unbelievable the timing of it and the, and the frustration around it and um, so that was just a crazy thing to go through and then you know going through the same thing in Walla Walla but not quite as bad and so we ended up making some really great wines in 2020 in, in Walla Walla um, you know I had to declassify a couple lots but in Willamette we declassified the entire vintage and just you know super frustrating and I know some people made some great wines and and uh, I'm super happy maybe jealous about that but um, I think it was certainly the right thing for us to to you know sell that juice off and, and do something else with it but what a hard year <laughs> hard year uh coming out of it with both from both the kind of the pandemic side and the wildfire side what were the kind of lessons learned for you and if you have to deal with something similar again what do you feel more prepared yeah um certainly how to you know it, leadership lessons were big you know how to um lead a team through something like that was was enormously you know challenging and a fa really fast growth curve but also i think there were so many 
business situations that were similar to, you know, it's a pandemic, but the financial crisis, mm -hmm. there were, you know, in, in a lot of operating ways, they were similar and, and you know, financial stress, stresses, stress everything. And at the same time, it was, you know, almost embarrassing too how well we did. Uh, when you see other people, you know, particularly the hospitality industry struggling, you know, so greatly, and then, you know, our business is killing it. Um, you know, that was weird to deal with, I think, mentally. But, you know, we raised some money for different you know, various organizations and tried to filter it out that way and make sure that, you know, we're playing our part to giving back to, you know, helping share that a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, but, yeah, the, the human aspect, I think, was, was the biggest part. Um, and, you know, I mean, 2020, it wasn't just the pandemic. It was, you know, so, like, you know, political issues and humanity issues and um, things that, you know, were taken to huge levels that weren't small issues. They're major ones. And, and none of it was easy. And, um, you know, a lot of it, you know, still isn't fixed and, and is still going on today. So it's just, you know, understanding people are human, too, and, and people make mistakes and, um you know what we always try to do is focus on the big picture and and understand that you know you also got to keep you know sharpening the sword and sharpening the blade and and uh, give people time to to um, recuperate a little bit and yeah it was a stressful year but our team did really well so it was, it was kind of cool I think in that regard to see see people be successful in the midst of <laughs> chaos and and sadness and and whatnot. So tell me about looking ahead a little bit now. You've got obviously a kind of the established brand, the newer brand, and the even newer Willamette Valley project. So tell me about what comes next uh, for you or for, for Doubleback and for Bledsoe family and now the Willamette Valley. Um, what are you looking ahead to and what are kind of what's kind of on the horizon? Yeah, we're, you know, we're really focused on what we're doing. Um, we really like what we're doing. We really like where we're at, but trying to get better at it. I think that's, you know, the main, the main take home <laughs> there for us is we're not, we don't want to get out over our skis. We don't want to grow just for the sake of growth. We want to make sure that we continue to make better wine and not, you know, get complacent or go the opposite direction. So we're just really focused on, on doing what we're doing and trying to get better at it. And, um, you know, building a company that nobody wants to ever leave. And, and um, yeah, it's just, uh, we're, right now we're doing a lot of planting in our state vineyards, so developing those more and more and uh, continuing to just fill in some gaps, I think, that, that we have. You know, like I talked about with the estate sites, is just, you know, this last vineyard that we're under contract on is kind of like one last piece of the puzzle in, in making a double back a great wine, in, in my mind. And, you know, hopefully in the Willamette Valley, we, we continue down that same path. Um, I don't think it's something we're looking for actively, but if something comes up, then, we're certainly excited about that and trying to continue to make better wine. Mm -hmm. And what about for yourself personally, is look ahead? <laughs> oh man, my wife just had a baby, so. Um, That's right, congratulations. Thanks. Um, focused on a lot on my family right now and uh, making sure, you know, everything, um, you know, especially the last couple of years, your family, uh, the older you get, the more I think I've understood how important that is and how you can't get it back and um, just spending a lot of time with, with them and, and uh, trying to be happy in that regard 
and you know be a good example for my kids and and uh, yeah it's it's I think that's where my head's at mm-hmm. there <clears throat> I'll get emotional if I keep talking about <laughs> it. <laughs> I'm uh, curious, since we don't, we don't have a lot of uh, Walla Walla perspective in, in the archive. Um, yeah. We have some, but not a ton, although we do have Gary Figgins and Chris Figgins. Um, tell me about, you mentioned Walla Walla kind of small, uh, obviously has boomed as a wine area. Tell me about watching its development and what it kind of looks like now and maybe look ahead to the future for Walla Walla. Yeah, so you know, I was big, you know, my hometown, love, love living there, beautiful area. Um, like I said, as a kid, I wanted to leave, and now I don't know if I ever will outside of, you know, maybe just traveling. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I love living there. It's a great place to raise kids, and we have, you know, great food scene there. You know, James Beard Chefs, and, and um, the hospitality industry is getting better and better. And so just a beautiful, awesome uh, place to live. Um, you know, Chris and Gary Figgins um, were huge in my life, kind of the founding fathers of, of really Washington wine on the qualitative level. You know, they, it was the 1982 Cabernet was named top Cabernet in America and uh, put things on the map. And, you know, the way Gary did build that that winery was incredible. And uh, I think I actually wrote a paper on him in high school, uh, which is super funny. But he was uh, he worked at the cannery actually with my dad. And uh, that's kind of how we first kind of knew each other. And um, he's a true American, um, you know, dream story kind of mm-hmm. thing. But Walla Walla, I think, you know, 20 years ago was not as half of it, what it is now. The food scene's come a long way, like I said, and, and hospitality is on that way. And then, you know, there's been some good outside investment. Um, but one thing that I like about Walla Walla that I think that's different than like Napa or even Willamette to an extent, being so close to Portland, is that it is a true destination. So you're if you're coming to Walla Walla, you're coming for wine. and. You know, that's different, I think, in, certainly in Napa, where you can day trip out of the Bay Area and, and go up and hit a few wineries and have dinner and, and head back home in the same day. Um, and you can do that here out of Portland, too, really well. But in Walla Walla, it's really hard to do that. So <laughs> I think, you know, because of that, I think maybe some of that, some of those higher, not higher, but bigger wine companies have been a little bit slower to come in, um, you know, because of that, you know, you're not seeing, you know, 40,000 people through a tasting room every year. Um, so that's a little bit more challenging, but it is starting to happen because the the reputation has grown so much that, you know, you saw uh, the Jackson family just, just purchased a, a piece of property and they're going to do a high-end wine project in Walla Walla. And, um, you know, the Valdemar family, the oldest winemaking family in Spain, uh, uh, built, what, three or four years ago now and and opened a winery. So there's some really good investment. And and the coolest thing that I've seen is that people are doing it the right way. Um, The Jackson family, they're actually making their wine at Doubleback. And uh, so we've gotten to know them and, like, kind of like... Kind of like Mimi, like I was fully, but in reverse, like I was fully prepared to hate the Jacksons. Like, oh, it's the big corporate company coming in and they're going to ruin everything. And it could have been more different, like opposite of that. They were just asking questions and what can they do to help? And, you know, what are the best things that, you know, how can they do this and how can they do that? And they just came in with, with the great, the, a great attitude and they're doing things at a high level and just, I think, uh, are really bought into the success of the Valley too. And, and you know, buy buy in of that high tide rises all ships kind of things, rather than you know come in and we're Jackson, we're going to do.
do it our way and fuck all the rest of you. <laughs> so it's just been uh, it's been cool to see um, you know the continuation of good people coming to Walla Walla, which that can change quickly, but. Um, if we can help foster that, I think mm -hmm. it's a good thing. You know, we've always had that approach, like, don't badmouth people coming in. Like, let's see if we can help them and uh, get to know them and point them in the right direction. But Walla Walla's got a really bright future ahead of it, and I, I'm certainly excited to see it. And what about for the Oregon, we'll use Oregon liberally here, wine industry as you look ahead, including kind of the Walla Walla, the Gorge, obviously the AVAs that span the border there. Uh, what have you seen as part of the industry and what comes next for Oregon? Oh man, I, I mean, yeah, Oregon's got such a great reputation from Willamette Valley to Walla Walla. Um, you know, the Rocks District, which is part of Walla Walla, was named the most distinctive terroir in America, you know, from Wine Spectator, like that's a huge statement. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I don't, you know, I don't know. I think certainly a lot more growth and investment, and growth of existing brands, and um, you know, global recognition of the Northwest. And that's how we view it: is the Northwest pulling together and, and making this big name for itself. And um, you know, with global warming, there's a lot of people understanding that maybe it's too hot to grow in, in Napa and in a lot of California. And you know, we're certainly a lot more poised to accept some of that. Uh, than other places, so there's just I think the sky's the limit for for you know where we're focused in in Willamette and in Walla Walla and uh, you know Oregon as as a state is just you know there's so much to offer. I mean the Northwest has great and, and a beautiful place to live. Um, you know, there's the taxes aren't as bad as California, <laughs> um, and and you know we grow we grow everything you know from vegetables to fruit, and we also have you know great you know salmon. You know, I was driving down the Columbia River early this morning, and you know I got Copper River, uh, got it's Copper River salmon, but we got some uh, Columbia River salmon that's coming uh, soon too. And so like the Northwest is, and like we've got great Cabernet and great Pinot Noir and great Chardonnay and great Riesling, and you know I've had some pretty good Chenin Blanc. There's and sparkling wines now, so Northwest is an incredible place to live, and I think people are starting to see that. And I think that there's just a ton of, of good growth. I think because I think I think the leadership understands um, how to how to uh, try to point people in the right direction and, and control the growth in the right way. I'm interested to hear your answer to this question because we've never had anybody who kind of had a wine brand already at the age we're talking about here. But if someone weren't coming out of college interested in joining the Oregon wine industry, what would your advice or words of wisdom to them be? Um, yeah, God. Uh, <laughs> have, have already started a couple of years earlier. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would just say like be humble and um, don't be afraid to take a, a, you know, a lower end job that you're not, you know, you're not gonna come out and, and be a CEO of a company and enjoy that because I think when, if you start at the bottom and work your way up, um, you get a lot more respect for it, but you also get um, a, a much better understanding of what you're doing and that'll just help you in the long run. And I think, you know, be patient, work hard and, and be a good person. Don't burn a bridge. Um, the wine industry is really small and people talk and, I can't tell you how many phone calls I've gotten from people for job references, and it's like, yeah, they're a great person, and or not, you know, and yeah, and my reputation or yours is is what you have, and just so just be a good person and and be humble and work hard. 
All right. All the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today? No, that was great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time for yeah. joining us here today. Thank you. And uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah, awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.